life. My name is Monica Molinaro. I'm doing the introduction a little bit more quickly today because I'm so excited about the guests we have and the content that we're going to talk about. So very quickly, I'm joined here by Vicky. Hello, hello, everyone. And Gavin. Hey, how you all doing? <laughs> and today we have two very special guests in the booth. We have Jennifer Bader and Monica Mutaretto. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. So do both of you very quickly just want to give a little spiel about your roles here at the university? Sure, I'll start. Um, so I am a career counselor and, and also a psychotherapist, and I work in the careers and experience department, um, and more specifically in the career education team. So my work is primarily one-on-one -on -one work with students and also group work. Awesome. Okay. And Monica, I know you've already been here before, but do you want to reintroduce yourself again? Absolutely. My name is Monica, and I'm a huge fan of Jen's. Um, <laughs> I go to her for all sorts of questions, so I'm really excited to have her in here today. My title is Manager of Graduate Student Life, and it's a new role at Western, and my job is trying to find ways to enhance the graduate student experience outside the classroom. So that's what I spend most of my time dedicated to. Perfect. Beautiful. Okay, so if you aren't already able to tell, today's episode is going to be about careers once one has completed graduate school. And the thought, like even just saying that out loud, my stomach literally turns. So I'm very excited to have the both of you here today because we all, I know, have some questions. I know myself personally, the moment I start thinking about what I'm going to do when I'm done my PhD, I literally feel like I'm going to vomit. So <laughs> I'm very excited to have this time with you two today. And we've been very fortunate that we've had multiple people, I shouldn't say fortunate because multiple people are feeling the same way as us, um, which isn't necessarily the best feeling, but this is great because I know that we all have questions, we're all concerned about what we're gonna do when we're done. So it's just nice to have some experts here <laughs> to help we are us. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Excellent. Uh, can I preface this by yes. saying because a lot of the, the listeners and people who are concerned might not know, doctoral graduates have very good employment statistics. So let's just start with that. Yay. So I'll set the tone yep. saying that that in Canada, mm -hmm. people with PhDs do have very very high employment. And that's really funny because when we're in our PhDs, we often hear most of the time there are no jobs for us specifically in academia. You have maybe 5% of PhD candidates moving on to a real academic position like professorship, that sort of thing. So it's very discouraging, I would say, at least in the field that I am in that we don't have any you know, job prospects specifically within academia. So to hear that, makes me feel a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm a stats person because mm -hmm. I, I study, I, I live in these statistics myself. So um, I'm doing some research on this in my own outside of, of uh, Western life. I'm a student as well. And the stat depends on your program. So I think I heard you say 5%, which may be a stat based on a certain program. Okay. But kind of across the board, we usually say somewhere between 15 and 22% okay. of doctoral graduates will uh, hold a position as a professor. I don't mm -hmm. want to say achieve a position. It is an <laughs> achievement, but there's a lot of other things to achieve. Mm -hmm. So um, that statistic really varies. And some programs, it may be like that. And right. that can also be what the conversation is, mm -hmm. right? Like people have these numbers and they don't know how to interpret them. So we have uh, a lot of information we can probably share. Yeah, actually. I mean, yeah. And, and that question, that's assuming that there's only one route to take with a PhD. Yes, and yeah. I think that's part of what we're going to talk about today mm -hmm. is kind of um, reframing what uh, a path, your career path might look like uh, outside of just pursuing that one possible goal. Definitely. And I think that's a common 
misconception that we all have going into a PhD. I know at least when I started, I was very much of the opinion that I was going to end up in academia. And as time has progressed and maybe I've gotten a little bit more jaded (laughs) over time, but I'm not sure if academia is where I want to end up. And I think there's a lot of PhDs that currently also feel that way. But now we're all feeling a little bit stuck because we had always had this assumption that academia was the only option for a PhD. And you use the word academia and we all do. And often when I'm trying to have conversations with people about this, I say on-campus jobs and off-campus jobs. Because if you're a researcher Mm -hmm. for a federal organization or, for example, one of my my first passion was archaeology. If you're not an archaeology prof, you might think, oh, I'm not an academic. But if you're leading a firm and you're out in the field and you're doing the research because you've just found an important um, indigenous site and... That's academic work. So there's kind of on-campus, off-campus is also how I think about it rather than academic and not academic. Mm-hmm. I think usually we use the word academic to mean professor or full-time researcher. But there's still, if, if there's so much you can do that might not be considered academic in nature with a doctorate, and we could talk about that for days. Mm-hmm. But if you love the whole academic side, it doesn't mean the only option is an on-campus professorship or research position. You can still stay academic, um, do academic things, as we'll call them, but work in a variety of capacities anywhere. Like, it's it's amazing once you start to explore what those might be. I think that's already such a good first step to breaking <laughs> this all open right now for us. So this, this makes me, this already, I'm feeling a lot yeah. calmer in this moment. So maybe we'll dive right into it. I have a list of questions here in front of me. So thanks to everyone in advance that submitted questions to us. And the first few are in relation to doing some sort of academic job. I would say a lot of them are in relation to being a professor specifically. Um, But the first question that we received was, do I have to do a postdoc if I want to end up in academia? Is a postdoc a prerequisite to becoming a professor or a faculty member? I, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this question, but I think you would all agree that the answer is it depends. And just as you are looking to see what the requirements are for a role in academia, you do the same things for a role outside of the academic environment. And those things involve talking to people, um, talking to people who have been recently hired, who have recently taken on um, uh, a, a role that you might be interested in and see how they got into that job. If you know that all of the new hires at a particular university have a postdoc, then that's probably a pretty good indicator that it would be a good next step for you. If it's varied, again, talk to people, ask for for um, advice, and let that uh, determine what steps you take as opposed to just making assumptions. And it's great to hear that different perspective too because mm-hmm. at least within the PhD or academic field, um, as a student, you often go to your mentor or your supervisor to you know, sort of gauge how the academic process works and what kind of job you can get after your PhD. And it's hard to hear that one perspective of saying, I did this, this, and this step, so therefore you should be doing that mm-hmm. step because it worked for me. And so I feel like everyone has blinders on in terms of their PhD because they only have that one perspective to turn mm-hmm. to. So I really like this aspect of like hearing different perspectives. And, you know, if you don't want to go into one specific field and you want to branch out a little bit, what are those opportunities that you can take? And so I love hearing the word it depends because that means I don't have to do a post. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Definitely. Find people who are three to five years ahead of you, three to five mm-hmm. years in the direction of where you want to be and, and get their advice. Mm-hmm. Because I guess the path isn't linear, right? So 
people take different approaches to do different things and maybe the end goal is the same but the path in between isn't doesn't have to be so definitely yeah that makes me feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Another piece that is not common in all fields, but is common in, in the academic field, is often you can read people's CVs, right? They're usually online. Faculty departments might include them. So if you can't track the person down yeah. and get them to talk to you, do a little bit of legwork and say, you know, that's a really great institution. That What that person's doing is really cool. And if you can't find the CV, then your next best bet is LinkedIn. And if you don't know how to use LinkedIn in a sneaky way, um, there are lots of kind of back back entries to read, you know, um, people's information and find out uh, where they came from, that sort of stuff. Then attend some of the seminars that are available on campus Mm -hmm. to learn how to use LinkedIn in different ways rather than just posting about yourself. It's a really great research tool. And that's interesting to think of because we, I would say in specifically the science field, we don't often advertise LinkedIn as something that we should have, Hmm. at least in my department. Um, We often focus on ResearchGate, which doesn't give you as much information as LinkedIn does, and I can see the value to having both as well, so that's something to keep in mind. I find that really interesting because out of everyone that I know in my program, and I'm in the health sciences, all of us use LinkedIn. I don't know very many people that use ResearchGate. It's the exact opposite. Yeah, so all of us use ResearchGate, and I have a LinkedIn. I don't necessarily use it. It's just there to give me notifications every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. But that's the essentially the extent of it, and I don't know anybody else within the field that also links up with LinkedIn. We often, you know, give ResearchGates, but yeah. Mm-hmm. LinkedIn, I mean, LinkedIn's my favorite uh, <laughs> resource. I think everyone should be on LinkedIn, whether you're considering a career in academia or not. I I worked a number of years with a professor from anatomy and cell biology, and I would do a LinkedIn session with this class every year, both his, his master's and PhD students. And year after year, I never realized that he didn't actually have a profile himself. He just thought as a faculty member, I don't need to have a LinkedIn profile. And one year I convinced him to create one. And so he did it with his class. And from having a LinkedIn profile, he found that he was invited to speak at international conferences based on his research. He was asked to supervise a PhD student with another faculty member in the U.S. And so all these opportunities came up for him that he wouldn't have otherwise Mm -hmm. um, found just because now people could find him and his research areas and expertise through LinkedIn. So it's definitely a valuable tool regardless of what your goal might be. And this won't be the case for everybody, but I I was thinking of this story where I worked with a student last year that I coached her through um, her resume and she wanted, she's like, I'm still not working, I'm sending out resumes. I said, well, let's spend some time on that LinkedIn account. She did a lot of work and she emailed me about two weeks after she built it and she'd been contacted by two different firms to say, you sound like the kind of person we're looking for based on the expertise that you have. And she was in computer science. So before that, she was sending out applications and getting nothing, and it switched within two weeks to her having actually leads where they came to her. So it's really a great idea. In the last month, I've actually started building my LinkedIn when it was mm-hmm. nothing. Have, I've been it's working been, on LinkedIn, Gavin. <laughs> I kind of went for a LinkedIn explosion, and I think it's actually because, Jen, I attended your LinkedIn workshop great. about a month That's ago. Awesome. And yes. because of that, I think in the past four weeks, I've gone over 50 connections and have gone... Gavin's I kind of went a bit overboard. I've been lurking him on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I took a peek as well. Yeah. I updated all the projects, achievements. I went like, this is two years behind what I've done now. Mm-hmm. So 
It's actually a lot more beneficial than I thought because originally I only associated LinkedIn if you ever wanted to apply to industrial jobs. Mm -hmm. So, so like, especially in, for me in earth sciences, if you were in mining and oil, they'd always use LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. But if you were in any other field, not even just academia, if it was like hydrology or geochemist, they would either go to, not even ResearchGate, that doesn't seem to mm -hmm. come up much. They just do it either through conference, talk, meeting people at conferences or many, many emails to for companies or professors. I guess that means I need to work on my LinkedIn. You did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I start off all my, my LinkedIn workshops, and you'll remember this. I joke that people bring with them the baggage from other social media accounts. Mm. So on Facebook, even using the term like lurking someone on <laughs> LinkedIn, right? And mm. that comes from creeping someone on Facebook. Yes. Yeah. Um, yep. And I, 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 I have always... no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, I, no. Because on Facebook, it's your family and friends. And if you have someone as part of your network, then you know who they are and if you are looking at your ex-partners new partners Bahamas 2019 photos that's kind of <laughs> creepy right it's kind of creepy you don't want yeah. people knowing that you're doing that mm -hmm. but LinkedIn is professional no one's right. posting those kind of photos um, you should be connected with people that you don't know who they are and so you really have to like leave your baggage at the door and come in knowing that the whole point of LinkedIn is to look at people's profiles who are unknown to you. And people should be looking at your profiles. It's not creepy. Like that's, If you're using it correctly, you are looking at strangers' profiles and they are looking at your own. And there are just a small, a few small things you can do if you want to connect with people. Just tell them why. Hi, so-and-so. We connected at this conference. I'd like to stay connected on Facebook. Or I was in this class with you. Or we met here. Or I've never met you, but your research is really interesting to me. I'd like to stay connected. You literally just have to tell the person why you want to connect with them. And that, um, that then makes the awkwardness go away. Definitely. This you actually preemptively answered my question because that was going to be my question is I know like every week I end up with a new connection request of some sort from this person. Sometimes they're from the university and I've never met them before, but sometimes they're literally just random people that yeah. I've never met before. Like is is there a level at which you should be evaluating your connections or should it just be like should you do one giant accept of everyone what's it's a great mm -hmm. question i have a really simple rule to okay. answer that question this is how i treat it if i would say hello to you in the ucc i am confident that you know who i am i know who you are i just accept your connection and i just connect with you if i'm not already connected with you on linkedin if there's any doubt as to how i know you we've all had that awkward hello and you're like i think i know that person i'm not sure from where um if there's any doubt you just give them context it was not great to run into you the other day um this is how we knew each other let's stay connected on linkedin and then my rule is that if someone adds me and I don't know them, I wouldn't say hi to them in the UCC, um, and they add me without giving me context, I just decline their request. Okay. Yeah. That makes it easier. Because yeah, I, I do. Yeah. really simple. Mm -hmm. I decline it. Or if it's a student, I might say, hi, um, can you give me context as to how, how we've met? Okay. That's a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. For sure. Definitely. Because I think 
almost all of the requests that I've ever gotten are just the random, like just they send the request button. Yeah. No context, no nothing. So good to know. I have them just all like sitting. I haven't accepted or declined. (laughs) They just kind of like sit there. They're on the wait list. They're They're on on the wait list. list. So this is good to know. So I guess piece of advice number one is everybody should have LinkedIn. If you need help with your LinkedIn, where do we go? Uh, I do lots of sessions. So um, the career education office, uh, we're just, again, just a bug of Starbucks. Um, We do regular workshops. I do two a term on LinkedIn specifically. We also have daily drop-in hours. So from 10 to 4 every day, you can come in and have someone look at your profile. From 1 to 4 are grad-specific drop-in hours. And so you'll get feedback from other graduate students who have been trained on how to use LinkedIn. Um, And then through the Own Your Future program, I also do LinkedIn sessions. So if you're looking through Connect, it's just connect.uwo.ca, you'll find a whole bunch of different sessions on LinkedIn that'll help you learn how to use it. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so we're going to transition to some other questions now, specifically about careers, and maybe LinkedIn is helpful for some of these. But first question that we received, if I have a very specific PhD or PhD thesis, can I get a non-academic job? Yes. <laughs> I was yes. nodding and Jen jumped <laughs> on the mic. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And let me let me say a little bit more about this. Mm-hmm. And. I just came from a meeting with colleagues where we were talking about changing the story of the PhD. And there's this old narrative that exists that a PhD graduate is too narrowly focused. They're, they are not going to be successful in industry because they've only studied one particular topic. And we have to get away from that because even if you've been narrowly focused on a specific topic in your PhD, that is still experience. It is no different from someone who has worked at TD Bank who worked on one special project for five years, voice authentication, uh, and they worked on getting that project up and running and off the ground. There is no difference. It is still experience. But for some reason, we value that person at TD who worked on that one specific project for five years over the person who worked in academia on one specific project for five years. Same skills are developed, just different topic areas, different settings. Experience is experience. And I think the problem is when we think about the PhD, we think of it as like a liminal phase between is it a work experience or is it school? Yes. And so I think a lot of workers, at least from what I've heard from other um, students trying to get jobs in industry fields and that sort of thing, most people don't necessarily appreciate the PhD, at least in the way that they delivered their experience to the worker in the sense that it was schooling. Mm-hmm. And so they say, okay, where's your work experience? Although the PhD, at least in my opinion, I think is work experience. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. It's that idea, and, and this was part of the conversation we were having, that I think we're trying to pitch a PhD as the premium version of the undergrad. It is not. <laughs> it's not the upgraded <laughs> version no. of the base level Subaru. Undergrad. It's a totally <laughs> different <Yeah>. car. <laughs> it's a different Excellent. car. You are, if you want entry-level talent, you hire from an undergrad Mm -hmm. population. If you want mid-level talent, you hire from the graduate-level pool. Right. And you said something great that I want to touch upon. We said lots of great things, but (laughs) you talked about how one project and then the other project. And when I talk to graduate students about their resumes, I have no experience. I said, well, talk to me about your project management experience. Mm -hmm. And often they'll look at me blankly or disheartened and say, I have no project management experience. But think about the research that you're doing. So some of the questions I ask are, 
Oh, you have no project experience. Well, tell me about your dissertation. Are you working with other people? Yes, actually, I'm supervising some people in my lab or I'm supporting some TAs or, or something along those lines. So you're managing and you're coaching people like a project manager might do. Do you have deadlines to work with? Are you dealing with funding? Are you trying to organize timelines? Are you managing multiple competing responsibilities? Those are all things that you learn about developing project management skills. If you can switch the kind of framework of your thought as you're writing, if let's say you're looking to apply for a job that would be not considered an academic job on campus or off campus, um, and project management is listed, that's the language they're using. Take all of your fantastic experience and try and in that moment, and it might not be for every job, but use that language. So rather than saying, I led a study, I led a major project that involved the following aspects. So it's about reframing the way you look at it, but often we are so limited, uh, and sometimes we feel a bit beat down, right, mm -hmm. um, in understanding how what we do is really quite similar to the types of projects and the types of leadership and expertise that people are building in other fields. And we're just doing it in a different way, but the same skill set's being used. Yeah. Hmm. And if you're having trouble articulating that, we've done the work for you. <laughs> uh, Excellent. Yes. <laughs> Love if, it. If you go to uh, it's higherphd.uwo.ca, we've outlined the eight skills that we know employers value. And we also know that PhDs um, develop during their um, during their program. And we've actually broken it down and given you talking points for how you can say that you add value to an employer. That is so beautiful because I think <laughs> when I think about it, like I think that's something that once again becomes something that we kind of get wrapped up in and that, well, I'm just a student, like I'm not developing skills because I'm not working. It's mm -hmm. that conception. Like we, we had a question about it, kind of led perfectly into it. It was CBC has done a profile on individuals with PhDs in non-academic careers being successful. But what if I don't have any skills because I've only been in school and don't have the means to start my own business? So it's like all these skills, we are developing these skills. Yes. It's just in a different context. That's right. Well, how about the number of times we say, well, in the real world? Yes. Real world, yes. <laughs> I have been working on campuses for two decades. So have I been living in an unreal reality? No, <laughs> this is a career. This is the real world. Yeah. So it's part of that story, right? Speaking yeah. of that. I think, I think we have to look at getting into graduate school or starting a PhD as landing your first job. Okay. And that is job experience from day one. Um, and you develop skills just like you would in any other kind of role. See, I also find that interesting because when I think about conversations we have about doing PhDs, I know at times I get asked, so when are you going to get a real job? Like, yeah. when are you done and getting a real job? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I'm supposed to answer that because I feel like I think about my dissertation. I think about the research assistantships that I have. Like, are those not... Those are real jobs. jobs? <laughs> they sure <laughs> are. Turn to the person and ask them what a real job is. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if they say, oh, something where you're doing 40 hours a week, and your answer is, I do 40 and sometimes more. Um, I know it's more. I'm just trying not to promote that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and they say, well, no, it would be something where you're contributing to society. Well, holy crackers. How much are we contributing to society when we're doing all the important things that we're doing? So maybe turn the question around when someone asks you that. And that gives you a chance to educate them. Because a word we used as well already today was people don't appreciate mm -hmm. the PhD. It's because people don't understand it. It's a very small population of people mm -hmm. that have either uh, worked with people who have PhDs or who are engaged in the PhD process. So perhaps maybe I'm a little bit smug hoping that people know what it is, where mm -hmm. really it's a small group of people and I should be more open to kind of explaining it 
because there are, there are many people that this would not be something they'd ever experienced before. For sure. Yeah, it starts with you having to believe that what you're doing is real work. And if you believe what you're doing is real work, it's a lot easier to then articulate how it is real work. I think that's where the problem mostly stems from, because, Mm. you know, when I show up every day, you know, I'm thinking this is graduate school. And when we have that terminology such as school, we're doing coursework. We have student cards. Yeah, student cards. (laughs) I still use my student card to get discounts places. (laughs) I I would do that, too. And I still do that. Student card. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's all those. It's all. There's a bunch of terminology yeah. and what is known or what is more commonly known about going to graduate school. Or I shouldn't even say commonly known because it's not a fact. It's common opinion about mm-hmm. graduate school is that we are still students attending school. We are not working. And so I know even a bunch of us in the population also think. How am I supposed to enter the job market? Because I don't know how to market myself because I just feel like I've been in school for a million years and I don't know what to do about that. Yeah. And that's a real problem. Um, Not the problem. It's not it's not a problem that you've you've done your Ph.D. The problem is the difficulty in articulating the value that you have to offer. That's the problem, because once you graduate and enter into the traditional job market, um, you just automatically get practice in selling yourself and marketing yourself. But that's not built into the graduate school education. Uh, and so you're, you're you're out of practice is really all it is. Um, and so I think that's why we see students getting to the end of their PhD feeling like they don't know how to add value. It's not because it's not there. It's just you're not practiced in how to articulate that. Definitely. And that's the thing. Like you said, it isn't built into the system at all. And so... Mm-hmm. I guess I'm speaking for myself here, but I don't know about everyone else here in terms of their PhD, but I find that the type of information that I'm given to, I'm given as a PhD student, I don't get to see those types of um, work experiences outside of just the academic environment. And so in that sense, I feel like I am destined to be on a path for academia, even though I know there's other job opportunities for me, but I, I don't know how to apply to them. I don't know what they are. I don't, I don't have that that thinking yet to sort of broaden my reach outside of academia so even stepping back from that like where do I start like one of the questions we literally (laughs) got was like where can I end up (laughs) like what can I do with my PhD because we don't have a clue okay I love that you just asked that question (laughs) (laughs) just fed right into my next my next comment because You're right. That is a really hard question to answer. It feels like it has one answer. I can be a professor. Mm -hmm. And so if you're working on a problem that has one solution and you know that the solution does not apply to all because 15 to 22 percent of graduates go on to become a professor, um, then you're screwed, yeah. right? Yeah. You can't actually work on that problem. I know. (laughs) You can't work on that problem. And so... When, when I work with PhD students, the first thing we do is identify what are the problems you're working on. And if the problem that you're working on is what does my PhD prepare me for, then we're not going to ha- make, we're, there's not going to be movement there. So mm-hmm. what we have to do is actually reframe it. Find a problem that you can actually work on, something that's actionable. So instead of asking the question, what does my PhD prepare me for? We instead want to ask, how can I use my PhD to work on interesting challenges, problems, and opportunities? Okay. There's lots of answers to that question. There's lots of ways you can work on that problem. Okay. When mm-hmm. it comes to the diversity of, of where people show up, so this is a, a, a 
tool that I like to talk about that I send people to, um, I really, I love Jen's approach. And if we could get every graduate student thinking about what are the problems we want to solve, then this conversation will be old school, right? We'll, we'll get where we need to be. But if you need a, a, a kind of like quick moment to say, well, what could happen? I and actually, I was really excited. I just got accepted to talk about this at a national conference for student affairs. Ooh, I so know. Um, there's a tool that comes out of the University of Toronto that I find really inspiring. It's called the 10,000 PhDs Project. Hmm. And I know the, the PI is actually on my committee. And what they did was they tracked these doctoral students through the internet. They didn't, they didn't call them. They just did a, a public search. And you can click on your discipline. And it's, it's one snapshot of one cohort from one university. But you can actually click on your discipline and then see where did PhDs end up. And then you can go private sector, public sector. And you can click as far as, oh, you know, I'm an English major. And 14 English majors from this cohort are working in banks. Oh, three are at TD, four at Royal mm -hmm. Bank. And although you can't see what the projects are and you can't see what the issues are, you know, the big, the big um, problems that they're solving, mm -hmm. it at least sometimes when you're late at night, you're thinking, gosh, where, where did people end up? What a neat tool, because it's Canadian content, to see how have other PhDs moved in on-campus and off-campus jobs, and what are some of the organizations. And then you pair that with the excellent LinkedIn research <laughs> skills you've developed, and you can learn a little bit more. And sometimes yeah. we'll talk um, in a lot of advising sessions about networking. Sometimes you can reach out and actually say, and it's a risk, because you might get rejected, but say, hey, you know, I, I noticed that. I was on LinkedIn, I was looking at people with my same field, I noticed that you did a, a PhD in molecular biology and you're working in this field. Would you have five minutes to share a little bit more about your career or could you add me to LinkedIn so I could take a look at um, your work history and, and see, depending on how private it is, and see kind of how you got to this great accomplishment of yours. Right. And sometimes people really like talking about themselves. <laughs> so there's a chance the person will say yes. And if you have that common connection, where they can recognize why you're contacting them. Well, we did the same degree, or we're from the same hometown, or we both did a degree at this university. Um, they may be more likely. If you cold call them and say, I like your job, it looks cool, maybe they'll say yes. But if you can find people that you have that commonality with, there's a good chance that they might at least add you and you can gain that information. Oh, definitely. That's that's exactly <laughs> my favorite way to use LinkedIn. I use I, I tell lots of different stories when I do LinkedIn sessions, but I was working with a graduate student last year um, who was an international student who felt that he didn't have a network in Canada to rely on to find employment opportunities. And this, this person was really reluctant to use LinkedIn um, through a lot of coaching, I guess you could say. Uh, he decided that he would start reaching out to people. We created a short list of 10 people that he found through the alumni search tool on LinkedIn. So you can find people, you can use the keyword search PhD or search your program and find graduates of your program. And he found someone who had graduated from the same program as him, uh, I think, seven years prior and was working in at Sotheby's doing vintage car archival work. And he was interested in archival work and so he reached out to the person saying hi so and so um, I'm a Western student from this program and your work sounds really interesting I'm wondering if you would um, connect so I can learn more about what you're doing and she responded saying 
definitely she was so enthusiastic was so excited to hear from someone from her program wondered how everyone was doing how the professors and faculty were and through their conversation she recommended that he talk to a colleague of hers who worked in the UK and she facilitated that connection a week later he was talking to someone in the UK who made the recommendation that he speak to someone at Museum and Archives Canada Later, he had a conversation with that person. He landed into a year-long internship, hmm. all from a quick reach and search using the alumni um, tool on LinkedIn. So people are more willing than you think to help you out. I mean, they're not going to get you jobs. I, I, I <laughs> joke that my, my five-year-old daughter is still learning this, that asking someone for a job is just like asking someone you don't know to be your friend. Um, <laughs> she'll see someone playing with a toy in a grocery checkout line and ask them to be her friend. But there's a few steps that happen in between there, right? So just as asking for a job, you never do that, but you can ask people for information and advice. And that then often leads to opportunities. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I have a follow-up about yes. this. So let's say you have difficulty asking people to be your friends or mm -hmm. like connect you yeah. or you have difficulty reaching out or maybe it's difficult for you to have that mindset of how can I use my PhD to solve XYZ problems yeah. that I'm interested in or work on these things that I'm interested in. Let's say for whatever reason there is some difficulty in yeah. doing either of those two things. Is there somewhere that students can kind of, or anyone in grad school can just kind of start when it comes to finding a potential career? Like, because there's some students, just when I think about the population, there's gonna be some students who might have difficulty reaching out to others. There sure. might be some students yeah. who are just like, you know, for me, I just, I don't know where to start. I have difficulty reaching out to people. Is there somewhere I can just, where should I start looking? How should I mm -hmm. do this? Something that's maybe like a little bit more easier laid out and it, they have a lot of apprehension yes and I always say this they're time poor yes mm -hmm. right so there's all these layers to it and I think people procrastinate on it yes yeah. because of the fear the apprehension the other responsibilities that they have yes and I'm sure Jen has an answer to where they can start <laughs> yeah well I think we've talked about that part yeah. already is the 10,000 PhD project LinkedIn there's a lot you can do sitting in front of the TV on your laptop from the comfort of your own home yeah um, in terms of research. Grad students are really good at research. Apply the skills you use in your work to your personal needs as well. Use those same research tools. If you read a paper and you want to learn more and, and there is, you know, you want to reach out to the author, most people don't even think twice about reaching out to an author or, or somebody else. But when it comes to their own life, for some reason, those same skills no longer apply. Mm -hmm. um, but they need to. And sure, get started by even just creating a short list maybe it's here's 10 people I would be interested in talking to I don't have to reach out to them but I'll just compile a list of 10 people or here are 10 industries or here are 10 companies or here are 10 challenges so even just actually actioning and, and starting to think about what are some alternatives what are some things I could do when I feel ready to reach out um, but at the end of the day action has to be taken nobody gets strong by thinking about going to the gym Right. Yeah. Uh, I wish. Right. We'd all be so strong. Yes. Good. <laughs> Tying into this too, having I had great conversations last night, not at the gym, about um, imposter syndrome with a bunch of grad students, and we were talking about ways to to build um, a fantastic graduate experience, and so I want to throw in here too that LinkedIn and resumes and CVs, nobody lists the times they've stumbled. 
Nobody lists the number of times they applied for jobs and didn't get accepted. So sometimes we also have that comparison piece where I could send students to LinkedIn and they would say, but I don't look like these other people. Well, no, because you're your own fantastic story. And so you need to be the, the star of your own show. Um, and don't compare yourself to these other people because as well, you're seeking out information probably from people that have a different life experience and perhaps did their studies many years before you did. So remember, first of all, um, do your best not to compare. Second, you're the star of your own show and, and your story will be unique. And third, there's probably a whole lot of stumbling blocks and what they would consider failures and things that were really tough um, that you're not going to see reflected in that. There's a few profs that have actually posted their failure CVs online and those <laughs> are kind of fun to read about. I don't know if anyone's seen them where they talk about how many times things didn't go right yes and so that's something to think about yes those come up on twitter quite a bit too where it's like if i had to come up with the highlights of my year these were the highlights but what people don't know is that these were the lowlights and then they make this huge list of all the rejections they got how many times they cried how many times they got rejected for something xyz and i do think that that's important to know because linkedin is like that different it's like instagram like an academic (laughs) work related (laughs) instagram where you're scrolling through everybody else's profiles and seeing how great they all are and then you feel like crap about yourself because you're like well what have i done to make my profile look good nothing i had a research project that just did not work out and it's not on my linkedin account because it was a four-month contract the research didn't happen the way it was supposed to happen. And LinkedIn isn't a commitment, like a transcript of everything you've ever done. Oh, it's yeah. That's right. And <laughs> <laughs> you, you bring up a point that I find I overlook sometimes, that people do feel like if they're not recording everything, they're not being truthful. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point of LinkedIn. It's you're showcasing the things that are most relevant to what you want to do in the future. And I feel like that's hard for a lot of people to get into, right? Because obviously you are your worst critic, right? So when you think about your accomplishments, obviously all of the other um, negative aspects are shrouding your accomplishments, right? And so when you look at other people's glowing profiles, you it's hard to relate, even though, yeah, Mm -hmm. you have some accomplishments in there too, right? Or you enter Mm -hmm. into this mindset where it's like, how am I supposed to market myself when I don't think I have anything that's worth marketing? Yeah, Mm -hmm. It's even harder when it talks about skills, I find. Like, Mm -hmm. how do I justify saying, do I even have this skill? I mean, I may have, I mean, it's like if you dabble in something, do I justify saying, oh, I have this skill? Actually, use it regularly. Going back to the conversation we had before in terms of marketing our skills to jobs, positions, whatever, I do find that LinkedIn is very helpful for that, where you can list your skills and like click on what's, or people can recommend you for your skills. I find that those adjectives are very helpful in terms of translating Mm -hmm. what I've done in my PhD outwards into different non academic, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. contexts. Yeah, and you can find people, again, who are three to five years ahead of you. Look at what skills they've listed and cut yourself some slack when it comes to the skills that you list. You do not have to have expert level of the skill. Uh, When I first graduated from my graduate program and became a career counselor, career counseling was my number one skill on LinkedIn. What was my profession proficiency level expert? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> um, it's still 12 years later, my number one skill on LinkedIn. Um, and it's 100% grown over time. <laughs> so if it's a skill that you have even at a basic level, but one that you're interested in and one that you're committed to continuing to develop, add it on your profile. Okay. 
That's good to know. Mm-hmm. I try to, whenever I add someone new, I'm a little bit like backlogged right now. But whenever <laughs> I try to add somebody new, I always try to go onto their profile and see what skills they have listed and like recommend right. them for yeah, everything because it's like. a fantastic idea. It's the only way that like anyone else could give a boost if people are like <laughs> lurking each other's profiles or it's whatever it so, is. No, that mm-hmm. is a fantastic recommendation. And where you can recommend people you know do that because then they're most likely going to recommend you back so that's a fantastic way to use it oh thank you (laughs) when we talk about the confidence piece one of the things that struck me when i was working as a career advisor for graduate students and postdocs really surprised me this trend and i don't know if, if other people have seen it too master students cover letters were more confident and more direct than the phd students cover letters oh And so I talked to some colleagues and said, have you noticed this? And we had a great discussion. And even talking to students about it, one of the things that's different between a master's program, which is short, and a doctoral program, which can be quite long, depending on the programs um, that you're in and how life happens for doctoral students, is we're constantly in a phase of asking permission. If you want to change something in your study, you got to get permission. If you want to change your funding, Mm -hmm. got to get permission. If you want to apply for funding, got to get a reference letter. And so you're constantly seeking approval. So it's hard then sometimes for some doctoral students to see their skill set, see what they've done, and then articulate it in writing. Because, for example, what I would find is is often a a cover letter would read, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the Mm -hmm. opportunity to potentially consider me for this honorable and... (laughs) It's this, like, we've written so many grant applications begging for that chance (laughs) that it translates into the cover letter. And so a lot of this great space, you try and do a one-page cover letter where they could put all those skills and talk about that talent and really get the person excited is filled with, I sincerely appreciate the time that you've taken to yes. review my application. Yeah. And you only have so many words. And you've got to be, you know, word economy. I think my experience in this, I think my ability yes. to do that. Yeah. I would hope you would. Mm-hmm. And and that comes from, for some students, and I, I anecdotally, I say many, many students, I can't give you a stat on that one, mm-hmm. um, feel that they're constantly, and it becomes part of your culture, asking permission, getting clarification, can't change anything in this or that without getting approval. And when you're trying to then move into industry where you're going to be a leader, because we have so much leadership development in the work that we do as graduate students, it's hard to trans, you don't leave yourself space because mm-hmm. you're too busy asking permission to have someone read your resume. Yes. So that's something else I wanted to throw in there because it's tied into this conversation about how do I yeah. talk about my skills? Yes. We often don't even leave ourselves space because <laughs> yes. we're too busy asking yeah. permission. Permission. <laughs> yes. So follow up to that then. How, as graduate students, could we potentially become more confident in the skills that we've developed or become more confident in what we've done? Like, how can we become our own hype men so, in this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I like that. And I think getting outside of the environment that you're used to, right? Whether it's sitting on a committee somewhere else, whether it's doing an internship, Western launched new (laughs) internship programs for graduate students. Mm -hmm. So taking a year, doing an internship, uh, believe me, when you immerse yourself into another environment, it'll be obvious to you that you have skills uh, as, as a graduate student. So get yourself out of the environment that you're currently in so that you're working with more diversity. Um, there's very little diversity in terms of, I mean, you're working typically with people who all have 
graduate level education um, and and who maybe think in a similar way and who do work in a similar way or who are you know you're asked to do work in a very similar way and so you don't see what you do as particularly unique or value adding and so if you get yourself out of that environment all of a sudden it just sometimes automatically helps shift your perspective okay and let's say you don't have the opportunity to get out of yep. that environment in yeah. any way. What can someone do? <laughs> so I'm just like, I'm just no, thinking it, like covering all bases. Yeah. And, and part of it is taking advantage of the resources that are available to help you articulate that through the Own Your Future program for PhD students. There are tons of sessions where you can learn about your skill set and how it's applied and how to articulate what it is that you have to offer. I just hosted a session yesterday about strengths and looking at your unique strengths and how to articulate and use those in a professional setting. Um, and the feedback from the students, the PhDs in, in the, the session, it was fantastic. They were There were many, many aha moments where they realized, huh, I guess this is a talent. I never thought about mm-hmm. this as a skill before. I never had thought that this was particularly unique until I see it worded and framed in this way. Okay. And building on that too, is we're talking about the skills that you already have and how to talk about them. But very rarely in your life will you be in a place that offers this much free training at your disposal. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's an Own Your Future session coming up in March that looks at having uh, inclusive language and how we work with diverse cultures. In a job interview, you could be asked the question, what have you done to improve your sensitivity to diversity? Or we have a very diverse staff. Do you have experience working in them? And they'll word them different ways. But you will have the opportunity if you've gone through the free training that you're, you have access to as a grad student to say, actually, I did a seminar on that. I did a workshop. I value that. I spent time learning about it. On February 11th, for example, we're doing a safe talk, which is mm-hmm. suicide um, alertness training. And you can put that on your resume or your CV. And it might not seem like it applies. But I know one student who got a position and she actually articulated and we were talking about it. They said the reason that they chose me over a relatively equivalent applicant was I had training in mental health support and they thought that would be a great addition to their team. So it might not just be the skills that are listed in the job description. Look around campus and say, what else can I add while I'm here to build my repertoire of skills? Because if you want to lead other people, which many of us do um, with regards, and I don't mean lead them mm-hmm. you know, in a, a political way. I mean, maybe <laughs> be a manager or maybe, you know, be a director of something eventually, having those other skills that don't come to your mind automatically as a doctoral student may put you a cut above. And, and even some of the research is coming out that for faculty posts, they're looking for faculty members that have an understanding of jobs beyond academia because the feedback that the research is giving them is professors only have their own network. So if the only person you talk to is your professor and your professor only talks to other professors, then it's very limited with regards to the coaching you can provide. The number one person who influences a doctoral student experience is their supervisor or advisor. And if that's all that doctoral student has access to and that supervisor doesn't have a lot of connections and a lot of understanding of how to apply the skills that are specific to that research or that field to other areas, then they're limiting. So there are some um, some people that are arguing a wave is coming, but even then if your, Joel, your job goal is to be faculty, it's still valuable to learn these skills because they may set you, if everything else is equal, you may be the person they choose because of these other skills and talents you've developed. Right, okay. 
<laughs> okay, so much thinking to do. <laughs> but I feel like we also clarified a lot of aspects. I feel like I learned so much. Right. Um, yeah. I feel like, and how, how is that for a highlight of LinkedIn? We were here to talk about careers and yeah. it turned into a LinkedIn podcast. I, LinkedIn. Yeah. I know. If we have to do like a summative like takeaways at the end of this episode, it's going to be like LinkedIn is number one. Like everyone Absolutely. needs to go home and get LinkedIn. That's but right. Just to give, a, uh, give credit to the Own Your Future, I highly recommend people Fantastic. take it. I've already taken a few and I've already registered. I can't remember. I've lost count how many of them I actually registered <laughs> for. Most of them thesis based, but I recently went to one where it taught you how to properly structure how to write your thesis from start to finish. Mm. And it is using a nice little, I want to call it a tree diagram, but pretty much splitting it up to chapters, what's in that chapter, why is in that chapter, and Mm -hmm. how do you justify making connection from chapter A to chapter B. Right. So, but that's just one example, but Mm. I highly recommend people take that, especially if you're in your last two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. PhD. Honestly, to me, Own Your Future is like having access to a free degree-long conference. Absolutely. <laughs> Where you can take, go to any session you want, at any time you want. It's free professional development that runs the length of your degree. It's awesome. And there is a whole industry growing. And I don't know, Jenna, how often you see this, but on, on Facebook, I'm in a couple groups with other other doctoral students, for example. And one day I wrote, oh, gosh, switching the CV into a resume is a real time suck because I, I, I was taking time doing it, applying mm-hmm. for this job. Um, and I think four different people said, I'm a career coach, da-da-da, email me. And they, they'll charge you $45 to $100 an hour. And they're looking for opportunities to support people and their, their personal coaches or career coaches. And they're not necessarily experts. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I've been noticing is people say, well, I paid $400 for someone to do this <laughs> and it's still not working. And I always pipe up on these groups and say, go back to your alma mater. Go back <laughs> to the universities you've attended and say, what do you offer for alumni? Um, and do it and like, don't wait till you're in that position. Do it now while you're in school where you have access to people that are getting regularized training. It's their professional calling. They're experts. Some people will say, well, I, I'm really good with resumes, so I'm going to start a side hustle and I'm going to be a, a doctoral student resume coach. You don't need someone who is their side hustle. You have people on staff ready and willing <laughs> to help right. you. That's right. It's their literal here. job. It's their literal job, and it's it's free. And the cool thing about Western is that you have career support for life. So oh. 10 years down the road, if you need career support, you can reach back out to Western Alumni Career Management. And a number mm-hmm. of our services, resume help, you can access as alumni. You can come to workshops. You can attend employer events as alumni. So you have career support for the rest of your life as a Western graduate. That's oh. good to know. And that's yeah. a shout out to Western, to our <laughs> listeners who are not Western students. This does not happen everywhere. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Um, to anyone who's not listening from Western, you need to go look at your own school staff. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but Waterloo, where I worked in career advising, you had a number of free appointments after mm-hmm. you graduated, and then a very low cost career advising relationship could continue beyond then. Okay. Course, yeah. That's not bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've got a couple more questions here, and I'm trying to figure out which way I want to go <laughs> with these. Maybe I'll just go down the list. We've kind of already touched upon this, but is a PhD worth the stress and effort if I don't want to be a professor? Yes. Oh, it depends on what your reasons are. Yeah, I think okay. I think I always I, I'm defaulting to the it depends. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a PhD because you don't know what else you want to do, then that's probably not the best reason to pursue a PhD. Yeah. Um, If you've done your research and you know that the kind of roles you're looking for or are interested in, people who occupy those roles have 
a PhD, then that's a good reason to pursue one. Um, even if it's personal satisfaction or you have a personal goal that you would just like to accomplish and and and, and do a PG, mm -hmm. I think that's great. That's a good enough reason. But if the reason is because you don't know what else to do, then it's probably not the best direction to go down because it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. And we actually had this question last night, so we've talked about it recently. Is it, should I do one even if I don't want to be a prof? Yes, if you want to do one. And a really great comment from a student, because we had an undergraduate say, what do you, what, what do I need to know? And what does success look like as a grad student? And a current doctoral student said, success is, your success is based on your satisfaction and your satisfaction is personal. So find out what you want to do, what you love, what you want to achieve. And then if you achieve that, that's what success really is. Not all of these markers listed in a course book or a calendar somewhere. If you're looking to dive in because you're passionate about a topic, then explore doing a PhD. If you're solely doing it because you need to do it to become a professor, guess what? You're going to be doing the same stuff as a professor till the end of time. So there are people that enter, many people that enter into a doctoral program and also all the way up there was a study done in Canada, 40% of postdocs, once they got into that role, said, I don't want to be a prof anymore. Now that I know how much research is involved or now that I have a better understanding of this lifestyle or this career or the demands of it, they say that's actually not where I want to be. And so it's a it's a pretty big investment to do four to seven years of school uh, with that one end goal of a particular job and it not be the job that's right for you. So you need to do a lot of research for sure. Definitely. And alongside that, um, there was a question about, well, is my PhD worth it if I'm not a STEM PhD? If I don't have a PhD in the sciences? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm like biased because I'm getting a PhD reaction, not in the science. But yeah, yeah. It, definitely. I mean, just take a look. I mean, I, I, let me go back to LinkedIn. Take a look at people who have graduated with a PhD in non-STEM disciplines and look at what they're doing. And they're doing some pretty cool things. And so there's value there. And you develop an advanced skill set that you might not develop anywhere else and so there's ways that you can use that to be con a contributing member um, of society to do work that's really meaningful um, but no one's going to tell you what that looks like you have to figure that out for yourself okay okay i'm looking at the list we've got two more questions Ooh. yes these <laughs> last two these ones are funny so first off how much is my PhD worth when it comes to negotiating wages once I enter into the market and I'm interviewing for job positions? There's an extremely precise calculator to determine that. Wow. No, there isn't at all. Oh. <laughs> I got so excited. I, I was, was like, what is this waiting. Website? But there, there is data. So yeah. okay. I think it's the national student survey. There's some there's some government survey where you can actually look at what are the median annual earnings for someone with a master's, undergrad, PhD. So you can get a general sense of what to expect. Mm -hmm. Um and it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier on. If you're selling yourself as entry-level talent, expect an entry-level salary. But if you're selling yourself as mid-level talent, then you can expect more of a mid-level salary. And you're going to see out there statistics about master's students having a higher return 
on the investment. So if we look at this as an inv yeah. a financial investment, there are a number of things to think about. There's, a re there's the return on the money going out, but there's also opportunity cost, which is the lack of money coming in for the yeah. time that you're in school, because you potentially aren't earning as much now as you would later. The reason I bring this up is there are pieces out there that say master's students have a higher return. It is skewed because it often includes MBAs. So oh, people who yep, arrived yep. making eighty-five yeah. to one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. <laughs> yeah. So don't don't be disheartened by that because I've had students say I just read something and and yeah. now I feel like I've been wasting my time. That's not really reflective of the national data for all programs. It does get the MBA skew. Okay. Yeah. And and another piece too that I, I talk to students about when it comes to salary time. There's no magic number and it requires a lot of research. So sometimes students will say I have a doctorate and they're only offering me this in Saskatoon. Well, the cost of living in Saskatoon, mm -hmm. the average salary in Saskatoon may be very different. Well, it is absolutely very different than, say, <laughs> Toronto um, or another large city. So you have to do additional research. And when it comes down to those final moments of, of what it's worth and when you're actually in those hard um, conversations about negotiating a salary, um, you want to also think that what you get back from an employer is not just dollars. So you can, when you can speak about your offering, uh, your talent, what you bring, you can also negotiate things, uh, particularly a little bit more loosely in, in um, industry to say, well, you can't give me an extra $2,000. Can you give me an extra two weeks vacation? Yeah. Hmm. Um, can you do uh, a flexed work week? Like there are things you may be able to negotiate that may be more valuable to you than money. And even so. opportunities for advancement. So Absolutely. if you're aware of, uh, if you can negotiate an opportunity for advancement a year after, two years after, might be in your best interest to take a lower salary going in, but to um, reap the benefits later on. Okay. Or other things like writing in a conference. Yeah. So I want to stay, I'm, I'm a doctoral student, I want to stay yeah. high in my field. It's going to cost $2,000 to send me to a conference every year in the States. I want that written in my contract. Yeah. And you might prefer that, actually, because you won't get taxed necessarily on a conference. You Ooh. might get taxed on the salary. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And also, I guess, examining if there's a precedent that's been set by right. that employer as well, if they've hired under individuals with the same qualifications of you and going from yes there. that's right okay. I would also say though that don't go fishing around for other people's salaries because that's always a difficult conversation mm -hmm. and if you do you're basing it on their salary negotiation skills not your own okay right oh. so if they didn't negotiate <laughs> well um, and you find out they're making $65,000 a year um, don't use that as your base because you may be able to negotiate something that's more reflective of your talent than they mm -hmm. were definitely Okay, that's and nobody likes to talk about their salary. That's also <laughs> an awkward conversation, okay. so you won't make many friends in the sandbox yeah. doing that. <laughs> okay, so everyone keep that in mind. <laughs> um, okay, very last question. Maybe this one's easy. I don't know. Um, what's the deal with consulting? Can we do <laughs> I that? This. I love this question. <laughs> Is it I viable? It. <laughs> it's, um, if you talk to people from the firms that actually offer consulting training, it's really interesting to hear about the lives that they've led and the fun things that they've done. One of the reasons why consulting firms actually actively seek out doctoral students is our project management skills hmm. and our ability to see a problem and find a route to solve it. And so it will surprise many of the PhDs listening. There are actually clickable things on some of these major firms where it says, graduate students click here, doctoral students click mm. here, and they break out the entry level point and the salary differentiation between an undergraduate and a doctoral student. It is absolutely something to look into. And uh, there are training programs associated with it that you can kind of visit those websites. I'm not saying you have to be trained in that way. Um, sometimes you can join a firm and get on 
um, on-site training in that way, but it is a wonderful uh, option as a career, but it, you have to be very flexible. So it doesn't permit necessarily um, the nine to five experience that a lot of people are looking for, but some firms will. I'm sure, Jen, you probably, have you had students go into consulting? Definitely, yeah. And I mean, I would just echo everything that you said. I'm in my head, I'm aggressively <laughs> nodding over here. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great option because it's a similar skill set that, that, to what students are using um, in a PhD. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And the purpose of a PhD is to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, what we, that's what we're doing. What do we call in our, our proposals? Our problem statement is <laughs> that's what we're up to. And so what happens in consulting is you have an organization says, we have this problem. We want to bring in someone to solve it. Yeah. And who's, who better to say, I know a path to solving problems. I know a systematic approach to finding solutions to difficult issues than a doctoral student, Mm -hmm. because that's what we Mm -hmm. spend our time doing. So it might be something to really consider, and you'll be a stronger applicant if you talk to people like Jen and learn (laughs) about how you can articulate that project management, problem-solving, people management um, aspect of what you do. Okay. I have so much more to yeah. say about project <laughs> <No>. management. <laughs> so wait, so we don't necessarily need to market, like, the consulting job isn't necessarily consulting in relation to, like, the work that we've done. Like, if we've used specific methods or certain no. research topics, it's more so those broader level skills that we've yeah. developed in our PhDs that makes us viable for potential positions hmm. in Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things I've talked about with students very often, I had a great student who originally, she was confident, but a bit disheartened because her expertise was black holes. Well, you may find this hard to believe, but there's a, not a big market for black hole experts <laughs> Crazy. in Canada. <laughs> and I said, well, this is what you do. You, you have this issue. And if you go into interviews and conversations saying, I got a lot to tell you about black holes, well, you might lose people along the way. And in a consulting firm or any industry job, they might not care about the black hole. But rather than focusing on your findings, talk about how you got there. Mm -hmm. And it's like a ladder, and you climb that ladder, and every rung is a skill that you've gained. And what they want you to do is they want you to see their problem and take that ladder and swing it over and help them achieve a solution to the problem that they have. Because it's not when you're moving to industry going to always be about what your problem was. It's about your solving it. So how did you solve it? What tools and skills did you develop along the way? And those skills to solve that problem are probably going to be applicable to a problem completely different from that you're an expert in. But wow, have you spent a lot of time finding ways to find viable solutions to things. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't know that about consulting myself. No, me neither. And I also hear that a lot of people part-time consult. Absolutely. I didn't know that was a thing. Neither did I. yeah. Yeah. So I guess side hustle. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk, talk to someone who's doing that kind yeah. of work I mean that's if anyone's wondering what what step do I take if that's interesting there's no better source of information than the person who's actually doing mm-hmm. the work right definitely I feel like a lot of today's themes and answers have kind of just built upon <laughs> one another like they're all just intertwining somehow now yes no, that's well, beautiful. an important right? and exciting conversation mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like I think Jen and I could talk about this all day oh well, yes. Jen does <laughs> yeah. yeah well that's why we might just have to have you back because yeah. I don't have any more questions we're going to wind down maybe if we could leave it with one question like if you could think of like maybe your top three like takeaways from today or top three takeaways that you would want grad students to know about moving forward after graduate school what would those things be okay I'm going to do this on the fly okay um, and I'll probably miss something but I think come up with lots of ideas Mm -hmm. um 
there's lots of possibilities that you can move towards your future. And so don't necessarily just invest in one. Consider lots of opportunities and um, leave that periphery open. Give yourself an opportunity to consider things um, that are alongside or, or on the periphery to mm -hmm. the path that you think you're, you want to go down. So lots of ideas. Um, do something about it. Okay. So <laughs> take action. I, I can't stress that enough. I've worked with probably thousands of graduate students over the course of my career and anecdotally uh, we're really good at thinking ourselves out of taking any action. Absolutely. So you come up with an idea and you find a way to tell yourself why it's not a good idea and <laughs> you do that over and over again instead of just testing it out and taking action which kind of leads into the third thing which is try things. Um, you have to actually do something to see if it works. And you know that from research. You can put together a great plan, but once you start to do it, it doesn't often turn out in the same way. So so test things out, go and get experiences, try new things, um, things that it could just be a conversation you have with someone. It could be a short volunteer thing. It could be whatever that looks like. Test it out, try it, um, do something. Okay. Do you have top three? I, I'll give you two. Okay. One, okay. learn a little bit about LinkedIn. <laughs> Absolutely. Nice. And two, start now. If you've made it through this whole podcast, we know we're very entertaining and delightful, but <laughs> it's probably because this is on your mind. It's an investment of your time. It's going to be rewarded in the end. I've seen too many students say, I wish I had started earlier. Yeah. Same. Okay, good. I know. Nice. I feel like I have to go yeah. home and like open up my LinkedIn <laughs> yeah. now. I need to start and, taking notes. Oh my so god, I, I know. I'm gonna go start endorsing everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I'm gonna do. Okay, well, Monica, Jen, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm so excited to get this out. We might do another episode or two yeah, if we get more questions. Anything happens, I feel a little bit better about moving forward with my life. Once. So do I. So do I. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not lie. <laughs> so we all just taken like one collective sigh yes. in yes. this room. Uh, so yeah. um, with that then, everyone, thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions, let us know. Any of the resources that Monica or Jen mentioned in the episode, I attempted to write down as they were speaking. So hopefully they will be in the information for this episode if we can get our hands on all of them. Everybody go download LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully we'll be back with another episode soon.